Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Hey, if you're interested in joining an Elixir book club, there's a new one uh, being organized. We're being organized on Discord and on Twitter as being managed by Frank Kumro. And uh, really excited. We haven't picked a book quite yet as, as the time of the recording, but there's a lot of good content out there. And it, you get more insight from reading a book if you actually discuss it with somebody, I think. So um, if you're interested in joining uh, anyone else with that, Check out the show notes for links to join the Discord uh, or follow them on Twitter at, uh, at Elixir Book Club. Up next, Jose Valim made a PR change to XUnit and doc tests, which made the NX test suite of a thousand tests, where roughly 65% of them were doc tests, go from 8.8 seconds down to 2.2 seconds. How? How did that happen? Like, what kind of change was needed to make that happen? And so the change really focused on avoiding generating large ASTs when interpreting the doc tests. The change made running 633 doc tests in NX to compile four times faster. So I think that's really cool. And it's just an example to me of how generating AST should be pretty localized and kind of keeping it to the glue that calls out to other libraries and existing functions that are compiled separately if possible. So I think that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing that as part of the next release. Open Pro is getting a cool feature soon. <laughs> Truly global concurrency limits and rate limiting are shaping up to be in the next big Open Pro release. In regular Open, you might be able to enforce concurrency or rate limiting, but it's on each node. So it's only unique to each node. So if you're looking for global rate limiting, you might consider picking up Open Pro. And it was in episode 29 where we talked with Parker Selbert about Open Pro and Open, the open source library. And this is where he kind of started talking about his interest and his work going towards this global concurrency limits and focus. So it's really exciting to see that that landed. So if you want to learn more about Open and Open Pro and kind of from Parker Selbert, the author's mouth, you know, check out episode 29 where we talked with him about that. And next up, Surface 0.3.0 was released. So Surface is a live view component library kind of inspired by Vue.js or React.js. And it's been seeing a lot of improvements and work going towards it. The big two features that come in this release is they've been working on their Surface catalog, which is kind of like a React storybook of like being able to highlight and show and interact with the different components. And so they've done some work on the Surface catalog API. And they've introduced some new Surface compiler that allows auto-loading co-located JS hooks. So that's an interesting idea. I hadn't seen that one before. And there's also been some discussion about them wanting to stabilize their API. And so maybe a 1.0 will be coming sometime soon. Lots of exciting stuff happening there with Surface. Speaking of exciting things, NX Library, our new leg of Elixir land of, of machine learning, now has some early binding support for libtorch. If you're in machine learning, you may have used libtorch before, but you probably through PyTorch. So that is coming into NX. That's really exciting. I think a lot of machine learning folks are going to be really excited about that. Yeah, and the point that they were making is like this is early binding support. So yeah, it's early. they're they're <laughs> on the way. So it 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 is cool though. I'm I loved seeing uh, expanding support base there. Yeah, yeah, quote early alpha. So in other words, expect pain. <laughs> but it's also an opportunity, like if you are interested in contributing, that's a good time to jump in and start helping out. 
And lastly, Wojtek Mach wrote up a blog post detailing the last contribution from Dashbit's venture into Bytepack. And this details the redesign of the Goth library. Goth is a library for Google OAuth 2 support in Elixir. So Goth is Google Auth. And up next, we talk with Wojtek Mach, and this blog post is something he references and refers to in the discussion, so I'm glad to see that it landed. And that's it for the news. Today's special guest is Wojtek Mach. Now, Wojtek joined us back on episode three to talk about some of the exciting stuff that came out in Elixir 1.11. And I'm really happy to have him back because, you know, Wojtek, you've been with us since like the very early stages of this podcast when we didn't really have an audience. And you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll be nice to you guys. I'll, I'll come on. I'll talk with you. So it was awesome. What I love, though, is some of the stuff that you've been working on is really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to using it and, and seeing this being adopted by the community. So we're going to talk about things like the mix install work that you've done, which makes scripting easier. We're going to talk about xdocs for Erlang, just a lot of the adoption and excitement around Elixir and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you for coming. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure. So before we can jump into all that fun stuff, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, you know, in case people haven't gone back and listened, you know, all the way back through the back catalog to episode three. Maybe you can kind of tell us like where you live and what kind of work you're doing. I'm Wojtek. I'm based in Krakow, Poland, and I work at Dashbit. At Dashbit, we split our time between uh, basically two things. So on one hand, we work with the clients um, via the Elixir development subscription. And we work together with teams, helping with code reviews, answer questions uh, they might have, basically trying to unblock people, you know, being helpful. Apart from working with clients at Dashbit, the other thing that we do is we work on open source. And so we have created or maintained, contributed to uh, many projects like um, Broadway, Ecto, Phoenix, Hex. We have uh, a few Nimble libraries and we have um, worked on Elixir itself uh, as well. Well, first, I'd love to jump in and talk about Mix Install. This came out like just before Project NX was kind of announced and released. And I just kind of viewed this as an example of Elixir reaching that level of maturity and stability where it's now pushing outside of the core of what it's been doing into other areas that are kind of adjacent. So this Mix Install is helping us to have better support in the scripting environment. So maybe you can kind of give us a little background like where this feature came from and what you were trying to solve. Absolutely. Uh, what Mix install does, it allows you to define the dependencies that you want uh, kind of automatically installed. You can use this Mix install function in a script or in an IEX session, and it would download and compile uh, these dependencies, and then they would be available to use. There's a couple of reasons why I think this is useful. Uh, and why this was needed. There is the so-called batteries included approach in programming languages, and Python is very uh, well known for that, where the standard library has a lot of different uh, things so that you know you, you can write you, you can write your program just with the standard library, basically. But it also means that the, at some point, if you keep adding stuff, the, li the standard library might become a little bit bloated. And maybe some of the things uh, haven't been updated and, and things like that. And so I think with Elixir, we have this really nice balance that the standard library is not maybe like super, super big, but the things that are in there 
are of really high quality. But because the standard library is somewhat limited, it kind of begs the question, well, what about uh, some things that I might need in my, you know, like day-to-day development? And I think when you just want to use uh, Elixir in that scripting environment that you mentioned, Mark, you know, maybe you just want to download something, parse it, and maybe output something back. Uh, you know, it would be really co- convenient if Elixir shipped with an HTTP client and JSON library and s- some other utilities like that. But then, you know, if we bring them into the standard library, then, you know, there are uh, kind of constraints around this uh, one. The release cycle is very different. It's useful to have a project as a library because then you can, the maintainers can control release cycle outside of, let's say, Elixir uh, release cycle. I think with Mix install, what we want to achieve is allow you to have that that convenience to just use the dependencies, the libraries as conveniently as possible. Just you know, you you, you just you just define them and you can just use them without uh, maybe you know creating a mixed project or things like that. So it's a uh, we hope this will allow people to to play uh, with different libraries or write these scripts that happen to have these dependencies. What I love about that is just that point that our standard library isn't as huge as like Python, right? And I was thinking about that. It's like, yeah, you know, you mentioned JSON, you mentioned HTTP clients. You know, recently in the news, we were talking about Finch. And, you know, there's been a number of different iterations as we've been creating different, the community at large has been creating different versions of libraries. Like here's a new take on an HTTP client. Here's a new take on JSON. And this one's significantly faster. It's like, if you do bring all of that into the core, then it does make it harder to iterate on those and come up with a completely alternative. You know, like, oh, we're going from, you know, I don't remember what the earlier version of the JSON library was, but then it became JSON, you know, as a a newer one that everyone's kind of adopted. So that's an interesting point. I think this is a very very good point that you bring as well. If If there is a solution in the standard library, then it is kind of uh, maybe then pointless to explore alternatives because like, why would I write something new? Because, you know, there is something already there, uh, which I think uh, would be for words. Uh, so, so one example in particular, you mentioned the Finch HTTP client. Um, I'm, I'm a very big fan of that library. And, you know, if something like that would be already in core, then maybe it would not have been written, which would be a shame. That's true. So what do you guys think of the OTP side of things? Because I know that Erlang, doesn't Erlang have like two HTTP clients in it? Uh, there is at least one, uh, HTTPC. Um, not sure about the other one. <laughs> um, but so, so I guess what you might be getting at, Kate, is like what, that, that the standard library is pretty big in OTP, like there's a lot of things. Well, I, I've seen that the OTP team started moving stuff out of the standard library uh, over the releases. Um, so I think they 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 see that uh, you know like maybe maintenance burden and, and and things like that they want to slim it down and I think it's definitely for the good and as the kind of the Erlang side of the community adopted uh, uh, hex uh, then uh, and solutions like that you you don't really lose much by by moving stuff out because you can bring it in if you need it. That's a good point. Like previously, there there wasn't a good package management story for the Erlang community itself. And that's since been solved better. I can appreciate the Elixir approach though, because I can imagine removing, going back and removing a bunch of bloat from the standard library. It's got to be hard because there's going to be so many breaking changes and people are going to be stuck on previous major versions for 
who knows how long. And <laughs> it's just such a better approach, I guess, to kind of keep it slim and then not have to go back and remove and make these huge breaking changes. So I know that we've talked about Elixir 2.0 a couple of conferences ago, but I don't think there's a plan for that still, right? And even then it wouldn't be it wouldn't be like a huge new future. It would be more like removing all the deprecated stuff, if I recall correctly. Is that does that sound right, Wojtek? That that is exactly right. If and this is a big if there is an Elixir 2.0, I don't think it would have new features. It would just remove the deprecated things. Yeah. Uh just because there is no reason there is really no reason to wait for 2.0 to to ship something, uh, you know, like a big nice feature. But um, yeah, there are there are definitely no plans for 2.0 as far as I as far as I know. Yeah, I just wanted to to mention I I don't remember who said it, but a very nice way to think about you know like decisions in libraries and programming languages is that you know when when you face a decision whether to add something or or not, the no is temporary, but the yes is forever. If you say <laughs> yes to a feature, you are stuck with that decision. Yeah, but, but if if you say no. It's temporary. You can always change your mind. But if you say yeah. yes, you can't. Yeah, the no is the no, not now. And, you know, mm-hmm. with the reserved of, uh, yeah, we can change it. And then, yes, okay, I'm committed to maintaining this now. So coming back around to mix install, I found it really, really interesting. So I know that this, uh, in, in my in my perspective, I this was this idea was first introduced to me from the Project Teeks, I think, right? where it came up with uh, this idea of a temporary mix project so that it can do all the dependency management for you as it's running the script. That was such a good idea, but it was also kind of a hack. And so now this is built into mix, which is great. I've actually used uh, on s- several projects, like in Ruby, there's a, there's a way to do an inline bundler, you know, gem file, right, in your script, right? So you, you can still have your a similar experience here to mix install, but with Ruby and Bundler. So you just find your dependencies up on top. Bundler will go fetch those dependencies, inject them into your environment real quick, and then run the rest of your rest of your script. The details on how that's implemented might be a little bit different than how we approached it. But I found that really helpful for getting these one-liner scripts that I can just hand off to somebody. I'm not sure that you can actually do that in JavaScript. Maybe not. Maybe I'll get burned for saying this, but um, are we ahead of JavaScript now? <laughs> Did we win? <laughs> does, does Elixir have the better support for this kind of stuff? I don't know. Um, like I've used uh, I've used Node uh, to create little tiny npm command line utilities and things like mm-hmm. that. This would be different, and I'd ha- I haven't done a comparison to see how they feel. But uh, yeah. this this does bring me to a question. One of the questions is like, how does this work? Uh, mm-hmm. Because I know. Python, I know Ruby, a lot of them, have, and even NPM, you know, they have the ability to just install a global package. I know that that was not the direction that you guys wanted to go. And I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on why that was, what problems you're trying to avoid. Absolutely. So I think I can maybe first talk about the reason not to not to use the kind of global approach. And then I can uh, maybe... Uh, Talk a little bit how it's how it works under the hood. So um, the reason not to use the quote-unquote global approach, which which could be something like maybe you you just gem install something or npm install global uh, some some other dependencies. The problems with that is kind of by definition because you have installed something globally, then in your script you are referring to that global thing, and so you assume that global thing was installed. So it's not part of your script; it's an assumption. So it becomes not portable, right? Like I can't take that same script to another computer easily. 
Yeah, exactly. And we can also talk about this in in like the terms of implicit versus explicit. As you might know, Elixir really likes to be explicit about uh, about things. So 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 the particular problem with the, like the global install is that exactly the, this a script may not be portable because if let's say uh, on your uh, computer mark you are using um, you know full version one, uh, you you share a script uh, th- that uses full version one, and then you give it to me, but I happen to be using full version two. It's not obvious from the script and it might break, it might work differently. The solution we came up with is um, the only way to use mix install is to uh, explicitly specify the dependencies. It is pretty convenient to leave the version out. If you want, you just say, give me decimal and JSON, for example. But if I would be sharing a script with someone, I would definitely include the versions, the, the version requirements of my of my dependencies. I think it's worth talking about this like on a maybe on a spectrum where on one hand we have these like global dependencies which you don't really specify them at all. In the somewhat in the middle is that mix install approach where we can give you like version requirements. And then on the other hand of the spectrum I would say is the mix project where you, on one hand, do define the version requirements, but you also have the mix lock file that holds the, the actual versions. So the script specifies the library that it wants and optionally can specify a version. And so that helps it to be more portable. So then the first time I run the script, like, you know, I, I copy a script, you, you share one with me. The first time I run, it's going to be a little bit slower the first time because it has to download and compile that library. Is that right? Uh, that is exactly right. On the on the first run, we would download the library, uh, compile it, and like all of the um, all of the dependencies that you might have. So, so you did mention like temporary mix projects before. We we do happen to, to to build a temporary mix project for you. That would be the place where we store these dependencies, and that um, that mix that temporary mix project would be in the system temporary directory uh, on a kind of like a specific deterministic path. And we would be using, um, like, we would take the definitions of your dependencies and make a kind of like a hash key, so it's unique. Uh, and that would be the the actual path uh, in the, temp- the temporary directory where we store it, so that the next time you run the script, if you didn't change your dependency definitions, the shell wouldn't change. So we would reuse that directory, and so in that directory your project the dependencies would be downloaded and they would have been compiled and uh, they would be ready to go so you wouldn't have to wait does that mean if i had two different scripts that use the same exact dependencies that they would uh, use the same cache um they would ah cool uh, yeah I, I don't see a problem with that just like yeah you're just leveraging the existing cache that's awesome so how does maybe this is you can tell me if this is like going too deep but i'm kind of curious like how do the internals here work as far as like knowing where, cause you said you make a temporary mix project. So like, is there like something that you set in the runtime? That's like, Hey, Elixir, here's where all of my dependencies reside. And you kind of just like set that every time mix install runs. That's actually a great question. So we use mix to, you know, download and, and compile these dependencies, but, but, but only for those two, uh, two reasons. So uh, we do start Mix, and uh, Mix has an API, like public API for interacting with the project. You can do things like Mix project and then in project and give it a name of the project and a function to execute in the context of that project. So that's what we use 
to be like in the context of that um, of the temporary project. But after we are done, we no longer need this uh, this temporary project in that uh, in that VM in that runtime that you are in. So we kind of like do a cleanup, and it is as if mix uh, mix wasn't even started. Basically, it comes down to using mix to to compile these dependencies to have these uh, to to generate the bin files of the modules of your DEPs. And then we just make these beam files discoverable to your VM and, and load them for you. And so if somebody takes this into some production server and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a bunch of scripting and over time, like a bunch of caches are being built out. Is there like some kind of mechanism for cleaning out old caches or is your server just going to crash one day? Cause you just have like gigabytes <laughs> of like old caches and beam files and dependencies. That's a very good question. Uh, so first the caveat. The mix install function is going to be in 112, but we explicitly, it is explicitly marked as experimental feature. So it may change just because it, you know, it is uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat new still. And, uh, it, it may change where we want to take this, but I'm pretty sure it's going to stay like that. But yes, it's forever. Uh, yes, it's uh, forever. Now it's temporary. So um, <laughs> anyway, so speaking about uh, caches building up. Um, so there is no uh, like explicit mechanism to clear your cache, but as part of mix install, you can give it a second argument. Uh, a second argument is a list, list of options, and we support two options. The first option is uh, verbose. It will just print the path, uh, the temporary directory path, so you can inspect it yourself, clean it yourself, for example. And the other option is force, and it would like basically disregard the cache, build it from ground up. Uh, so. If for some reason your your project got stuck, that would be a easy way to to, to be unstuck. And, it, and since you're putting it in the uh, operating system's temporary directory, oftentimes the operating system itself will have its own mechanism for cleaning that out regularly. Like I know on Linux, most distributions will clean that out. I think every week or on every reboot, and so those caches would be cleaned up then. On OSX or on Windows, I don't know what those schedules are, but I, I bet that they have uh, similar strategies. Or maybe they never delete. And then, you know, just like any program, when the disk runs out of space, you're going to run into a variety of issues. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense. It, hence the name Temp, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to mention one thing, which is the feature is, is mostly built to experiment. I mean, I think there is no reason not to try it in production, but I probably would not until it, at least it's no longer marked as experimental. Uh, <laughs> yes. But That seems a little dangerous to, uh, in production somehow, just get an arbitrary list of dependencies and then go fetch. <laughs> yeah, what, what can go wrong? Uh, and, you know, compile it and, and things. But yeah, like when you talk about production, you know, like yeah. this is, I'm not going to be running a interpreted script like that in production necessarily like that's not my my running system it's not not replacing my elixir mix projects so you mentioned this is coming out in elixir 1.12 so i know that that's currently is not yet uh released there's a number of different enhancements i'm looking forward to in 1.12 can you give us any uh, inside scoop about when 1.12 is going to land um no comment <laughs> <laughs> there's a regular there's a regular schedule of this stuff right it's not it's not a insider scoop it's isn't it every six months or something i think the last release was uh instead of so there used to be like a every six months i think the last release was nine months since the previous one the last question i had on mix install was when i was reading about this why people were having struggles using elixir for scripting 
one of the things that I saw was the ability to trap exits in a helpful way. I've kind of seen that some, you know, doing some bash scripting and some other, you know, NPM stuff. I've seen that the idea where you need to be able to trap exits. I'm just wondering, has anything been done around that for this mix install work or are there issues or gotchas people should be aware of? Um, that's a great question. There, so, so that's one, uh, one other feature that comes in Elixir 112. And there is an, a new couple of functions around uh, exactly uh, handling system signals. So there is a um, system trap signal uh, function in 112 that allows you to add a handler uh, for uh, catching these signals. In the scripts, that would be one, uh, one way, uh, th- that would be one use case for, uh, for that new functionality to, to trap some signals and maybe do some cleanup work or, Things like that. This functionality is already uh, going to be used in Elixir 112, and that that is going to be in XUnit, actually. So, if for any reason your uh, test suite got stuck, you, you know, maybe it's like super slow, maybe it got stuck on on something. When you kill uh, your test suite, you're gonna see a little report on which a test it got stuck and which uh, which tests um, were complete and things like that. And th- that is using the signals. That's cool. Luckily, I don't have that problem very often where I get like stuck in a loop. <laughs> but that would be a great way to be able to find like, if nothing else, it's like, this one's really slow. Let me just see what's going on right now. Control C. Ah, that one. Exactly. Oh, and uh, I, I almost forgot. So you asked about, um, you know, like the when the Elixir version is gonna gonna be out. Um, I don't know like the exact date, but what I can tell you, it's definitely gonna be uh, after uh, OTP twenty four. Uh, so it's not gonna be before, but uh, not not soon after 20, OTP twenty four because, well, there is a lot of great things coming in OTP twenty four. So uh, there is gonna be a follow up, uh, so to speak, release of Elixir for sure. That makes sense. Yeah, because there's a lot of things that some of the new Elixir features kind of depend on and count on that are in OTP24. So that, that'll be a great pairing. So I love that mix install is uh, happening, you know, Elixir 1, 1.12, and that seems to be around the corner, uh, depending on OTP24. And that also happened to be around the time of the release of NX. So there's a lot of cool stuff coming. What else is coming down the pipeline? Do you have any insight on things like... I don't know. We got improvements to mix. We got. Do we have improvements coming to to X docs? Uh, we do. And so, um, a disclaimer: this is still this is still in progress. Uh, this is still being worked on. But what I can tell you is that th- we have been working uh, on it for quite quite a while. And basically, uh, and we already have some prototypes that I I think you you might have even linked uh, on the podcast. But basically, what we what we are trying to do is we want to be able to use xdoc to render erlang documentation. Oh yeah, that's going to be good. I'm excited about this and one of the things I'd like to understand is if I am an erlang author of a library, do I have to opt into this and say yes, I want to explicitly I I have to add xdoc support? Is that how that works? Yes, you would have to opt in and there is still some work to to make that process uh, as as easy as possible, like around the tooling for the Erlang developers using Rebar. Yeah, I, I'm super excited about this uh, about this whole feature, and it's it's been a, a long time coming, and I'm happy to, to to discuss it a little bit further because there is there is definitely a work in XDoc that needed to have happened, but there there was important work 
done in OTP24, actually, that, that makes it all available, that makes it possible. So I'm happy to, to talk about that uh, as well. I was looking at the OTP24 change log and saw them mentioning some standards that were being supported, like format standards for, for docs. So that, I'm wondering if that's probably part of that. It is. Um, so maybe I can really quickly talk about like the um, low, a little bit about the low level infrastructure that makes it happen because I think there are like interesting points in there. But but so so basically, when we have our Elixir or Erlang modules, they get compiled to Beam files, and the Beam file has many chunks. Some of the chunks is like your actual code. Some of the chunks is like the debug information. Other chunks are for documentation, and so. Uh, when you go to IEX and you maybe type H enum, you, you, you see the documentation that comes from the chunk, from the docs chunk. The big effort here and so, sort of the the prerequisite to allow XDoc render Erlang was two things. First thing was having support for emitting chunks uh, by Erlang in the first place. And so that have happened uh, on OTP23. So since OTP23, uh, you could do, let's say, H colon ads or H colon array and stuff like that. And it would just work. And this is because the OTP uh, started emitting chunks uh, for these modules. And now another very important development was work uh, done by uh, Radek from Erlang Solutions. And that is changing EDOC to emit these chunks. So, so EDOC is uh, like the documentation tool for Erlang, where you specify the documentation in code comments. And there are like different annotations that you can use. And like so far, EDOC would generate the HTML, which was pretty brutal, if I may say so. <laughs> now, there are basically like a couple of new modules that you can configure EDOC to use. And now EDOC, instead of generating that HTML, it would generate these chunks. Then, because it generates these chunks, all the magic can happen. So, for example, the, eventually you would be able to access documentation of your rebar dependencies from IEX, and uh, we'll be able to, to use XDoc to render these docs as well. XDoc uh, works on, on chunks. Gotcha. So, so eDoc is built into OTP, so that ships with all Erlang distributions and installations, right? But they'd have to opt into XDoc to get the uh, the style that um, we're used to in Elixir. Gotcha. Exactly. One of the things I just love about XDocs, so I, I hope that Erlang author library authors adopt it, is the ability to do a find, and it does a local search where it does like full text search on static content using your local cache. And I think that is so brilliant. And I just love that because it's like one of my favorite features that I can just do a search. You know, I, I know I remember seeing this text in here and I'm looking for an example that had this text and I can find it. And even though it's not like, you know, part of an index necessarily, it's not part of a function name or, or a section. I love that. You want to know what my favorite thing is about Hexdocs is when you go to the website, it auto focuses the search bar. <laughs> like how many websites don't do that? And it's infuriating. And then you go to tab and you have to like tab through the whole nav bar to get there. And then it has to set to put my hand on the mouse. Fine. <laughs> it's the little things. So. It's the little um, things. So, so maybe you can help me understand this part, uh, Wojtek. I, I know that um, OTP emits some doc chunks now that I've... 
uh, out of the type specs. Are are those handled differently than the documentation, like the handwritten documentation? Uh, because I can, if, if I build Erlang without docs, I still get the type specs though in IEX when I type H and the Erlang function. So so obviously that that seems to be treated differently than the the documentation chunks that that we're we're excited about. Can you help me f- understand like how that part works? That is correct. Uh, even if you, you don't have docs in your module, you would still see the types. And that is exactly because the types are stored in a different chunk that, okay. we, that, uh, that we just access uh, to render, um, to, to like um, show the types in, the, in IX. What differences are going to be in xdocs for Erlang libraries? I, I noticed some small styling changes, but obviously Elixir and Erlang are two, you know, different enough languages. I imagine that you probably had to make some adjustments to how the docs are rendered. Do you, do you remember any of those uh, changes? Turns out there are not a ton of changes. Nice. So one example would be like the type, you, you want to, I, I think you want to like use the conventions of a, of, of a language in, in that kind of documentation. So Elixir type specs, uh, for example, as an example, are kind of like rendered quite differently than Erlang type specs, for example. So, so that would be one, one change where we would switch. So, so this is kind of like the implementation detail a little bit, but um, we use makeup for uh, code highlighting, syntax highlighting. Mm-hmm. And so we would use the makeup Elixir for Elixir and makeup Erlang for Erlang. So um, it's, it's really nice that there is the makeup library that can have different backends. There already exists one for, uh, for, for Erlang, so we just, just use that. And maybe this is a small detail too, but are there style changes? Like if I had two tabs open, one with Elixir docs and one with Erlang docs, would I be able to tell them apart or are they going to be exactly the same? I think you know an answer to this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there is a very, very slight change. Yeah, yeah, we we make like a very, very small, small change. Uh, We put like a red bar just to kind of, kind of distinguish it a little bit, which I think is a nice touch That, that can change, of course, but yeah. I am super pumped about this. I, I know that I know that XDoc is not built in, but it feels like one of those things that should be built in. You know, should is not is not the right word, but it it feels like it's so first class to the Elixir you know experience that you know I, I'm very excited to get that kind of treatment in in Erlang too. For all, any of the library authors out there that are going to opt into that um, on the Erlang side, you know, I'm looking forward to that to that as well. So that kind of brings me to the, this last question, I guess. It's like, is there any, do you know of any particular outreach being done to kind of help evangelize and, and show like, hey, Erlang authors, you know, here's something that we would love for you to work and we'd love your feedback. Is there anything like that going on? I don't think there, there has been outreach yet. Uh, and that is because uh, it's still it's still in progress uh, around like the XDoc work that needs to happen itself, but also the integration of the build tools. What I've been doing from my part, I started teasing. I don't know who I got the idea from to tease uh, people about projects. Uh, <laughs> so I started teasing uh, a little bit and the reception so far was fantastic. I think people are really excited about this. One of the things I'm most excited about with just these kind of developments is, you know, we kind of talked about it at the top with NX, with mix install, with the docs, you know, it's like, it just kind of feels like Elixir is just kind of growing and expanding and being able to be a fit for markets that previously it was not a good fit for. I just think that's awesome. Like I run a number of little Elixir scripts just for my own workflow with the podcast. 
And, you know, I'd love to like try doing some of those with mix install and see kind of how that feels. And yeah, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really, I'm excited. We're almost out of time, but I'd love to hear like, do you have anything else that working on that you can kind of just give us a little tease of? Because you're like into these tease things now. <laughs> <laughs> there's one thing that I was working on uh, recently that, that might be of interest. There's a library called Goth, which is for creating authentication tokens for the uh, Google, Google Cloud. And so I've helped uh, kind of redesigning the library a little bit. We are going to have a new version pretty soon, um, a release candidate with, with these changes. And I only mentioned this because I think there was some of the improvements that we did could be of interest of people to maybe apply them to their own libraries or uh, kind of look uh, into the libraries they use through that lens. Uh, so some of the things that we did was removing global configuration and uh, removing a sing- single process bottleneck in particular and, and being able to switch HTTP clients. So um, yeah, stay stay tuned. We we are gonna we are gonna blog about this pretty soon as well. Um, but um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited about that as well. That's awesome. Uh, before the show started, we were talking about how there is a lot of libraries that will have a dependency on some you know HTTP library, and you know they probably choose HTTP Poison. Some might choose Finch. Some might you know use HTTPC built into OTP itself. The idea of saying, hey, here's a good pattern for how you can build your library to be independent from the HTTP communicating client library. I think that'll be great. It'll be a, a, a good uh, benefit to the community. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you have uh, with that, what comes out with blog posts and everything. If people want to follow you online or get in touch with you or be up to date on what's going on, uh, where should they go to do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, Wojtek Mach. Uh, that's also my GitHub uh, username, and that, that's what I use on Slack and things like that. So, yeah, feel free to DM me on Twitter and things like that, and I, I'll be happy to talk for sure. Well, thank you, Voitech, for coming on. Appreciate the update on the, all the exciting stuff you're doing. Appreciate all the the benefits that you're bringing to the community. And I'm really excited about Elixir 1.12 and OTP 24, and it's going to be an awesome pairing. But you know, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use or on your social media so others can discover the show more easily.